Welcome to Christchurch Manchester Sermon Podcast. We are one church that meets in various locations across Greater Manchester. For more information about who we are and where we meet, please visit ChristchurchManchester.com. Has anyone ever heard of um, the journalist, um, the late journalist Malcolm Muggeridge? Anyone ever heard of him? Few people? Yeah, so. Um, Malcolm Muggeridge was a pretty well-known journalist. I mean, he started out like in the 30s, 40s, but he was pretty famous in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. Worked for the BBC, traveled loads, lots of interviews. Interestingly, he uh, interviewed Billy Graham on Panorama in 1954, kind of really helped bring Billy Graham into the mainstream. And he's, he's actually credited with making Mother Teresa famous because it was he interviewed her in 1969, and it was that interview that kind of catapulted her to like worldwide kind of you know, attention. Everyone knew after that, really. But I was reading a bit about um, Malcolm Muggeridge this week, and apparently in, in 1980, when he was in his late 70s, he began to talk about lots of the things he'd seen in his lifetime. And, like, think about this guy. He'd been, he'd been a journalist in the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s. I mean, he'd covered the Second World War. He'd covered the Cold War. He'd seen, like, all the big-name political leaders in person, you know, up close. And he starts to reflect um, when he's in his late 70s, in the 1980s, about the things he'd seen and the things he'd covered as a journalist. And he shared in particular how he, he remembered seeing Hitler and Stalin and Mussolini. He saw all these, these guys. And he, he, remember, he says he remembers seeing them actually coming to power when they came to power. And he said all, all of them, actually, all three of these guys, they all thought they were invincible. All three of them. They all thought they could do anything. And he said they all thought that they were going to change the world forever. And to the outside world for a time, it seemed like they were going to do that. But then Malcolm Murgridge says, and just in this, this little interview that he gave, he says, these men who were once so powerful now, they're all gone, all gone, all gone with the wind. And it was just this very you know, powerful reflection of a guy who'd just been there and had seen it all. And, you know, I've, I've been thinking about um, what Malcolm Murgridge said in that interview this week, and it's, it's just really reminded me of the security that we have in Jesus. You know, like world leaders, they do come and they do go. You know, empires rise, empires fall. You know, Vladimir Putin, he's here now. He will not be here forever. Someone else will come in and replace him. Someone else, you know, the world, the leaders we have in our country, they will be here for a while, then they will move on. Leaders come and go. Empires rise and fall. But it just really, thinking about that this week, just really reminded me that, that, that you know, that all may happen, but Jesus never changes. Amen? Jesus never changes. He's the same yesterday, he's the same today, and he's the same forevermore. He's the rock, he's the firm foundation. And I suppose if you, you, know, if you add all those things together, the way, we, the, way we, the way we communicate that is to say that he is Lord. Jesus is Lord. He always has been and he always will be. And that's what I want to talk about today. Jesus is Lord. Real simple fact, Jesus is Lord. Now, I know you might be sitting here thinking, Andy, preaching to the converted here, we already believe that, we already know that, you know, like, you know, yeah, I, I believe Jesus is Lord, but I do think there's, there's a difference between believing something and believing something, do you know what I mean? You know, when something you're like, yeah, I, I believe that's true, and then it, you know, it travels. What do people say that the longest distance in the world is a distance from your head to your heart? It's that kind of, oh, I believe it. And I know some of you have heard me share the story of when I was 17 and I was at a, a church youth group and uh, this uh, uh, barrister came along, Christian barrister came along from, from Belfast and he came along and he, 
he basically presented the case for Christ, you know, the, the evidence of who Jesus was. And, um, and he, just, he, he just layered the evidence, layered it up until he gets to the end. And he's like, look, I think the most logical conclusion here based on the evidence is that Jesus is who he said he was. He's the Messiah, the Son of God, who died and rose again. And I remember, I remember sitting there in that room, the hairs standing on the back of my neck. And like, I believed it before, but when I heard that, I was like, ah, oh, I believe, yes. I was like, this is real. And I think this morning, my hope for us this morning, on this dreary morning in December, is that we, we all leave here with a little bit of that, like, wow, yeah, Jesus is Lord. He really is Lord. Like, you know, believe in it, really. Like, walking out of here, you know, a little bit on air. You know, can we do that? Are we allowed to do that in the heat? Yeah, that's what I'd love us to be. Just inspired that Jesus is Lord again. Who wants that? Yeah, Jamie. Well, Jamie, John, man, I will preach to you guys. Yeah, great. Let's do that. Now, the passage we're going to look at this morning is Luke 2, classic Bible passage about the birth of Jesus. And this is one of those passages which tells us very clearly that Jesus is, Jesus is Lord. Yeah, says it in there, you know, says it right there. But before I read the passage, I want to explain to you a little bit about what the world was like when Jesus was born. Because that will help us understand a little bit more about what the Bible means when it says Jesus is Lord. Okay, so this morning I'm going to do things a little bit differently. Normally I will do a three-point sermon, or if I'm you know, being a little bit lazy, it'll be a two-point sermon. Um, but we're not going to do that today. It's going to be a bit different. Instead, what I'm going to do is I'm going to share, I'm going to share some facts and figures and quotes about what the world was like 2,000 years ago when Jesus was born. And, and hopefully, this is going to help us understand a little bit more about what the Bible means when we actually get to the passage and it says Jesus is Lord. Help us understand what the Bible is actually trying to say here. Sometimes the background can fill in a lot of stuff. Now, the main thing you need to understand about the world Jesus was born into is that it was ruled by the Roman Empire. Who's heard of the Roman Empire? Yes. If you've been to primary school, you've heard of the Roman Empire. We all learn about the Romans, don't we? It's the, the number one thing. Yes. Romans. And yeah, Max has been singing songs about the Romans and stuff. Yeah. So, now when Jesus was born, the Roman Empire stretched from about England pretty much all the way to Iran. Okay. So you could basically travel from England, north of England, here, to virtually Iraq, Iran, unhindered, and still be in the Roman Empire. Okay, it was vast. Now, um, the Roman Empire was so big that ancient Greek historian Diodorus said, the boundaries of the empire are equal to the boundaries of the earth. And he's basically saying that the Roman Empire was the, was the known world for a lot of people then. They didn't really know anything outside of the Roman Empire. It was the world to them in the Roman Empire. Now, the Roman Empire, it wasn't always like this. It wasn't always this way. 500 years before Jesus, the Roman Empire was tiny. But those, those next 500 years, those 500 years coming up to Jesus' birth, it grew and grew and grew so much. By the time of Jesus' birth, the Roman Empire ruled the world. I think you can safely say that. Now, question. How did the Roman Empire come to rule the world? Well, I'll tell you what it wasn't. 
it wasn't by being nice, okay? You know, they, they, they came to rule the world. I mean, it's probably not a surprise to you. They came to rule the world through war, through conquest, and through slaughter, through killing lots and lots of people. Let me give you an example. In the Roman Empire's war against the Germanic tribes in 16 AD, so we're about 16 years before Jesus' born. It says that the Roman general Germanicus's forces slaughtered the population across the Rhine. So the Rhine we know as a, as a river in modern journey, in Germany. Germanicus slaughtered the, the people across the Rhine for 50 miles around and wasted the country through sword and flame. Neither age nor sex inspired pity. Only the destruction of the race would end the war. So do you start to see a little bit of an idea of how the Romans went about things? With problem people groups, they would just annihilate the entire people group. Men, women, children, everything. Just end the whole people group. That's how they went about things. Historian Polybius describes how he visited a city just after it had been attacked by the Romans. And as he looked at the scale of the destruction and the slaughter that he saw in this city, you know, human and animal corpses just lying everywhere, he said this, it seems to me that they do this for the sake of terror. And, and basically what this historian is saying, he's saying there doesn't seem to be any point to this level of slaughter apart from just to scare people into obeying you. But that's what the Romans did. They would do terrible things to people and people groups to scare them into obeying them. And that's how they used crucifixion. Crucifixion was something they used to scare people into obeying them. It's been deemed by many people to be the most cruel way of killing people that has ever been invented in the history of the human race. And the Romans used it loads. Very common in the Roman Empire. But by the time we get to Constantine, in about 380, Constantine, who becomes a Christian, actually bans crucifixion because he's like, it's just too inhumane. We're not going to kill people like that anymore. But it was widespread when Jesus was young, obviously. So the Roman Empire ruled the world Jesus was born into through brutality and slaughter. Now, Israel, obviously, was part of the Roman Empire at this time. And it certainly experienced its, its fair share of Roman brutality. Now, let me give you an example. Around 50 years before Jesus' birth in 52 BC, the Roman general Cassius enslaved 30,000 people around the town of Magdala in Galilee. Now, Magdala is the town where Mary Magdalene, one of, the, one of Jesus' followers, was from, and many of Jesus' 12 disciples were from this area. Okay, So basically, this general just rocks up, rounds up 30,000 people and says, you're no longer free, you're now my slaves, and you are for the rest of your lives, that's it. So the disciples you know, who were from this area would have known, absolutely known, what Roman brutality looked like. Their parents' generation, their grandparents' generation, they would have experienced this firsthand. They would have known it on their doorsteps. So that's 52 BC. Then 4 AD, let's, go, let's come forward about 60 years, 4 AD. So this is just after Jesus be born. So Jesus is maybe five, six years old, something like that. And when Jesus, in 480, when Jesus was about five or six years old, there was a, a Jewish revolt against the Romans in the town of Sepphoris. Now, Sepphoris is a, is a town just 3.5 miles away from Nazareth, where Jesus grew up. And it was the main town in that region. 
Now, Jesus probably would have gone there pretty regularly with his family to go to the market, to buy supplies, that kind of thing. So he probably would have been there many times. Now, Sepphoris was also situated on a hill. And I think we have a picture of what Sepphoris would have looked like from Nazareth. I think we go to the next slide, Anoush. Okay, so that's a, that, that's a depiction of what, you know, looking from Nazareth, you would have saw of Sepphoris. It's a, a city on a hill. Now, some scholars believe that when Jesus said in Matthew 5 that a city on a hill cannot be hidden, he was referring to Sepphoris, because this is the view he would have seen many times from Nazareth. It would have been a view he'd grown up with. Well, in response to the revolt in 4 AD, when Jesus was five or six years old, um, the Roman general Varus burnt the town of Sepphoris to the ground, and he crucified 2,000 men who had revolted. Now, Jesus, you know, we don't know this for sure, but Jesus probably would have been able to see the smoke rising from Sepphoris from his home in Nazareth as it burned to the ground. And he may well have even seen the crosses lining the road in the distance too. So, you know, Jesus, he knew what crucifixion was. You know, he would have been familiar with that growing up. And Jesus would have been very familiar with what Roman brutality looked like. This is what happened to the town on his doorstep that revolted against the Romans. 2,000 men crucified along the roads. Now, Jews in Israel at, this, at the time of Jesus' birth, they were an oppressed people group. Well, we've maybe heard that before. They would have felt like foreigners in their own country. And thoughts of the Messiah would have been very far off indeed for the, for the Israelites. So we can see when Jesus shows up and people start to realize this guy might be the Messiah, their immediate thoughts turn to, oh, free us from the Romans. Come on, set us free from the Romans. And, you know, if we look at our Bibles, Jesus essentially was saying, well, actually, you know, yeah, the Romans are a problem, but what I've come to do is far bigger than the Romans. But you can see why they were so desperate for Jesus to help them. So are we beginning to see an idea of what, is, what the Israel that Jesus was born into was like? Are we, are we starting to build a bit of a picture? It's not a pretty picture. It's not a, not a very festive picture either. But it, it is a real picture of the Israel that Jesus was born into. Now, let's talk about Caesar. Who wants to talk about Caesar? Not Caesar salad. It's the Caesar. Now, the ruler of the Roman Empire at the time of, of Jesus' birth was a guy called Caesar Augustus. Um, Caesar Augustus was the adopted son of Julius Caesar. You may have heard of him if you've ever had to study any Shakespeare plays. He's the guy in there. Um, also, he's nothing to do with Caesar salads. He did not invent Caesar salads. That's a guy from Mexico in the, in the 1900s. Okay? So let's not get Julius Caesar mixed up with, with, um, with Caesar salads. But Julius Caesar, he ruled the, the Roman Empire until 44 BC, 44 years before Jesus. But the thing about Julius Caesar was he, he couldn't unify the Roman Empire. He, he ruled it together with the parliament. They ruled it together. Now then after a power struggle, Caesar Augustus, his adopted son, eventually comes to power in 27 BC, so 27 years before Jesus was born. Now, unlike his dad, Caesar Augustus manages to bring the whole Roman Empire under his rule. So for the first time, all power in the empire resided with one man. He could do whatever he wanted. He didn't have to ask anyone. There were no votes. There was no consultation. What he wanted happened. 
This was a huge moment in history. And as a result of Caesar Augustus coming to absolute power, um, what happened as a result was temples began being built in, all, in honor of Caesar Augustus. And, and prayers and sacrifices began being offered to Caesar Augustus. Soon people began to worship him as God. And before long, the Roman parliament declared that Caesar Augustus was God incarnate on earth. The poet Virgil around this time said this about Caesar Augustus. He said, Caesar Augustus will be the divine king of salvation who mankind has been waiting for. He will annihilate the evil of the past and free the people from unceasing fear. He will establish a universal empire of peace and will lead the golden age of the blessing of a, for the blessing of a renewed humanity. So that's what the poet Virgil said about Caesar Augustus. Pretty grand words there. Now, after ruling for 10 years, so we're now in 17 BC, 17 years before Jesus, uh, before, before Jesus was born, the history books tell us that a strange star shone in the sky, and people were trying to figure out what's this star all about. And people at the time thought this star was Augustus's father, Julius, going to heaven. That's what they thought. Oh, he's a star. He's going to heaven. And the phrase they used to describe this was, they said, we saw the Son of God ascending to the right hand of Zeus. Interesting, isn't it? <laughs> That's what they said. So Caesar Augustus, well, he leapt on this. He was like, well, if Julius is God, if you're all saying he's God and he's going to be with Zeus, and he's my father, then that makes me the Son of God. So in 17 BC, he announced that his cosmic hour had come and that this was the turning point of the ages. I know, very grand to you know, announce that about yourself, that this was the turning point of the ages. So what he did was he started a 12-day celebration of his birth, and he called it, I kid you not, the 12 days of Advent. Now, during which the Roman priests distributed incense to get rid of people's past guilt, or that's what they told them anyway. Caesar Augustus was essentially here. He was essentially offering people forgiveness of sins. He was basically portraying himself as a mediator, as a high priest to the people, not just an emperor. He said, no, no, this is who I am. And, and they sang a, sang a hymn at this Advent celebration. And, and one of the lines goes like this. This is, a, this is they're singing this about Caesar Augustus. It says this, the savior of peace who has brought a golden age to the world may it last with increasing splendor from age to age, now and forever. So that's the celebration that Caesar Augustus created for himself, now that he declared himself the Son of God. Now, what they did at this time, back then if you wanted to get a message out about something, we didn't have you know, mass media or social media or anything like that, the best way of doing that back in those times was to mint coins. You would make a bunch of coins and you would put the message that you wanted people to know on those coins. And those coins would disseminate right across the empire. So they, at that time, at that celebration, they issued some advent coins. And the coins said on one side, Caesar Augustus, I think we have a picture of one. 
Caesar Augustus on one side, and on the other it says the divine son of God. Caesar Augustus, the divine son of God. That's the message he was wanting to proclaim to his empire. Now, it's really interesting. Now, this is a little bit of an aside. In Mark 12, we read about some people who came and asked Jesus, should we pay taxes to Caesar? And what does Jesus say for them to bring him? Bring me a coin. And Jesus says, whose image is on this coin? Caesar's image, they say. Now, the coin this person brought may well have been one of the ones that Caesar Augustus had minted, which said on the other side, divine son of God. Now, Jesus doesn't pick up on that, but it may well have been. And what does Jesus say to the person? Give unto Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. And the people marveled at his wisdom. But that's just a little aside, all right? Just a little interesting little factoid to throw in there amongst all the other factoids. Now, one of the common propaganda slogans at this time was that salvation was to be found in none other than Augustus, okay? So that was the big slogan. If you wanted to be saved, you came to Caesar Augustus. If you wanted, if you wanted to be forgiven for your sins, you would come to Caesar Augustus. If you wanted anything, Caesar Augustus, he was the one who could deliver it. That was the propaganda. That was the slogan they wanted people to buy into. And this... This is the world that Jesus was born into. So, are we you all still with me here? Feeling festive? No, neither am I. Not yet. We'll get there, okay? We just have to figure out now how Caesar got so powerful. Are we ready for that? You probably have an idea. Um, how did Caesar get so powerful? Well, because he had a huge army. I don't think that's a surprise to anyone. Uh, you know, and he would send his huge army to a town or a city or a village, and they'd say, Caesar is Lord. And if the people said, yes, Caesar is Lord, then they would live. If they said, Caesar is not Lord, then they would die or they'd be enslaved, one of the two. Uh, pretty much how it went. I'm dramatically simplifying it here, but that's, that's generally how it went. Now, how did Caesar Augustus pay for his army? Any guesses? Taxes, yes. So a ruler back then could only go into battle and conquer people groups if they had enough of what coming in? Taxes, yeah, taxes are money. So you tax the people to pay your soldiers who make your empire bigger. That's how it worked. And Caesar Augustus, we know, charged high taxes to fund his very powerful armies. Some people believe that the Jews back in Jesus' day who lived in the first century, by the time they, they paid the, the temple tax and the herod tax and all the other taxes they had to pay, some people estimate that they were actually paying about 80% of their income in taxes, which was absolutely crippling for people. And as a result, many people had to sell their family lands to make ends meet and would have had to try to find other work. So question, in the Christmas story, why does Jesus' dad, Joseph, why is he living in Nazareth? Okay? Now, one reason why he may be living in Nazareth and not in Bethlehem on his family land is because actually the taxes may have been so crippling to him that he had to sell his family land and learn a trade, carpentry, 
to make ends meet. Now, we don't know that for sure, but that's certainly a possibility. Okay? So the Christmas story, it's important that we know, is birthed out of incredibly tough economic times. Why? Because Caesar has brought peace? No. Despite his grand claims that Augustus had made everything okay, it just wasn't the case. The people in Israel were oppressed, they were poor, and they were desperate for someone to free them from this oppression. So we can see why as when Jesus comes, they're like, oh, get us free us from the Romans. That's their first thought, just get us free from the Romans. End these taxes, this oppression, this enslavery. You can see why they would so quickly jump to that. Now, if you're Caesar Augustus and you want to know how much more land you can conquer, what do you need to do? Yes, you need a census because you need to tax people. And to tax people, it's helpful to know how many people you have in your empire. And the way you find out how many people you have in your empire to tax, to get money, is to count them. So you need to have a census, which is where we pick up the story in Luke chapter 2, verse 1 to 7. This is this. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to their, town, their own town to register. So Joseph went up from the town of Nazareth to Galilee, to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger, because there was no guest room available for them. So can you see what Luke is doing here when he writes this account of Jesus' birth? He includes this information about Augustus. He doesn't have to, but he does. He includes this information about Augustus and his senses because he wants us, he wants us to see the bigger story going on here. Everyone back then used to say, Caesar is Lord. But Luke is telling us in a small little insignificant corner of the empire, a baby has been born. And, a, and he's telling us a small group of people start saying, not Caesar's Lord, they start saying, Jesus is Lord. Now, Caesar Augustus, he thinks he's Lord. He thinks he's the son of God. But Luke is saying, no, 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 no. Don't believe all that propaganda. Caesar's not the son of God. Caesar's not the Lord. But, verse 11, today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah. He is the Lord. That's what he's saying to them. And you know, at the time when Jesus was born, the Roman Empire seemed invincible. It seemed like it would never end. It was so powerful, but no one back then could have imagined a time when the Roman Empire would no longer exist. Certainly, no one would have imagined that someone would overrun it without an army, without using force, 
without ever leaving their country or without writing any books whatsoever. But that's exactly what Jesus did. Isaiah 9 verse 6 says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. You know, within 200 years of Jesus' birth, Christianity had spread right across the entire Roman Empire. A hundred years after that, the Roman Emperor himself declared that Jesus was Lord and he became a Christian. By this stage, the number of people who were declaring Jesus as Lord and becoming Christians had spread so rapidly that estimates are that 56% of the entire Roman Empire had become Christians by 350 AD. And we estimate that to be about 33 million people back then. Not long after that, Christianity was made the state religion of the Roman Empire. And since then, Christianity has grown so much across the world that today it's estimated that there are 2 billion people who claim to be followers of Jesus in the world today. And I love this. Do you know where the biggest church building in the world is? Rome. It's right in the center of Rome, at the very heart of what was once Caesar Augustus's empire. Today, Jesus is worshipped by millions right across the world, whereas Caesar Augustus, on the other hand, is actually most only really remembered because he gets a mention in Jesus' story. You know, it's amazing. I think so anyway. You know, 2,000 years ago, God came to earth. Like, he actually came into this world. That's huge, isn't it? That is huge. And it's no surprise we're still talking about it today. And when Jesus came to earth 2,000 years ago, he started something called the kingdom of God. Now, what is that? Well, in Mark chapter 4, verses 30 to 32, Jesus uses an illustration to describe what the kingdom of God is like. He says, it's like a mustard seed which is the smallest of all the seeds on the earth. Yet when planted, it grows and becomes the largest of all the garden plants. See, it started small, baby Jesus in the manger, but it grew, not through war or terror like the Roman Empire, but through the preaching of the gospel, through, through people believing the good news of what Jesus did for them at the cross and declaring that he is Lord, Lord of their lives, Lord of their souls, Lord of everything, Lord of their future. And you know, the kingdom of God is still growing. Amen? It is still growing, even in heat and more of all places. It's still growing here. Every time someone submits to God and says, he is Lord and begins to do things his way, the kingdom grows. And it is growing and it is growing. And you know, I was thinking just this last week about why I'm a church leader. You know, why do I work for a church? Why do I do it? And I think ultimately... It's because I want more people in this world to submit their lives to God, to declare that he is Lord and do things his way. That's, that's what I'm in it for. That's why I do it, you know? And I, sometimes it's easy to lose sight of that, but just this week I was like, yeah, that's what I'm in it for. That's why I do it. You know, Malcolm Muggeridge, the, the journalist I mentioned at the start, he, he observed that 
empires rise and fall, world leaders come and go. But, you know, it's just thinking, like, standing far above all the world leaders there are today, the ones you might think are good, the ones you might think are bad, standing far above them all is the, the one, the only one through whom mankind may still have a chance of having true and lasting peace, and that is Jesus Christ. He is the way, he is the truth, and he is the life. And he is, he is the only hope. He's the only hope for us all on this globe, despite what the politicians say, despite what the people say who kind of rebrand Caesar Augustus for a modern audience. Jesus is the only hope we have, and we have that hope, don't we? We have that hope. Thanks for listening. Christchurch Manchester is one church that meets in various locations across Greater Manchester. To explore this sermon or learn more about our church, please navigate to the links provided in this podcast description. From there, you can connect with us on social media. And you're welcome to check out the music links featured in this episode from our very own musicians. You can also discover current events and information about where we meet on Sundays and various groups or community projects that you can join in with. If you're interested in knowing more about us or wish to join us for one of our meetings, please reach out. Simply drop us an email at hello at ccm.org.uk. We look forward to connecting with you.